Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reed Smith Trading Straits podcast. I am Susan Riedela. I am a partner in the asset finance team of the transportation group here at Reed Smith. I'm joined today by Brett Hillis, a regulatory and ESG partner here in London, and Rob Lustrin from our New York office, who specialises in corporate and US securities law in the shipping sector. Brett, perhaps uh, you can kick us off and let us know what legal and regulatory changes are affecting green financing and carbon financing at the moment. Thanks very much, Susan, and hi, everyone. Yeah, so this is an area where there's a a lot of development and there's a lot of change. And and I think the most important sort of set of changes to kind of talk about in terms of finance is the sort of changes around providing standardised information about the environmental performance of kind of assets, bonds, investments, and also of companies, both financial companies and kind of ordinary corporates. So so the idea there being to provide standardised information around environmental performance and sustainability, really with a couple of objectives, sort of one to increase the space for green finance and also to prevent greenwashing So that there's an actual sort of standards where if people make a claim that a product is environmentally sustainable, that actually there is a set of objective standards that that can be measured against. Now, lots of different sort of jurisdictions are going down this track. You know, we've seen some things in the US, in the UK, but probably jurisdiction that's kind of gone furthest is the EU. And so I think it's, you know, what I wanted to do was just probably talk about some of the kind of the, the EU's approach, because I think one can see how, you know, that's perhaps going to be a pathfinder for, for some other jurisdictions that are in this space. So the EU has developed kind of what's called, what it calls a tax taxonomy regulation. And so what this requires is that kind of large undertakings need to publish information uh, for the public on how and to what extent their activities are, their business is associated with environmentally sustainable economic activities. And there's quite a lot of detail in, in the legislation around what does that mean? You know, what is economically sustainable sort of mean? in terms of, for example, kind of impact on climate change. And there's actually some really, really detailed kind of technical standards that have been developed to kind of screen activities to check that actually you know, they meet the requirements for, for that. So the regulation that um, kind of sets out those kind of technical criteria is actually over 300 pages long. But for, and where does that go? Well, well for a non-financial company so like an ordinary corporate then there are kpis that they need to disclose against relating to 
the extent to which their turnover, the capital expenditure and their operating expenditure relate to or covered by environmentally sustainable activities. And for financial undertakings, so for credit institutions and banks, investment firms, asset managers, insurance companies, then there are a sort of a different specific set of kind of KPIs that have been developed. So what we're going to see, I think, is that institutions, in order to kind of present for their investors, their sort of products in the best light, in order to show that actually any kind of environmental claims that they make around their businesses actually kind of have rigor behind them. That's going to push them towards undertaking environmental finance, green finance that actually kind of complies with these sort of regulatory standards, Susan. So, you know, that's that's really what's happening. There's a lot going on on the regulatory side. Brad, I thought that was super interesting. This is Rob Lustrin from Reed Smith in New York. I think that really interfaces nicely with the transactional side of green financing where we find ourselves in the United States currently. You know, the U.S. capital market's response to climate change was to a large extent initially driven primarily by social consciousness factors, ESG investing and the like. And from a, again, from a social perspective, the recognition of the effects of climate change and the imperative to use financing products and methodologies to combat climate change took a bit longer than in Europe. And as we all know, the first investment funds arose in Europe many years ago, around 2007. But you know, ESG investing and climate change awareness really took a little bit longer to take root in the United States and especially in the investing community, and was ultimately a primary discussion point in our 2016 presidential election. Really, we focus here on green bonds. That's probably the most prevalent form of transactional structure. And green bonds are fixed income producing corporate bonds, usually government bonds or agency bonds that are used to finance environmentally uh, sustainable and other environmentally linked projects. So like any other corporate debt instruments, green bonds can be structured as straight bonds, unsecured bonds, asset-backed bonds, cash flow collateralized bonds from projects, or hard underlying assets, or in the case of government-issued bonds, collateralized in certain instances by tax revenues. And there are also bond securitizations that have grown out of this as well, as you might imagine. The common principle remains, of course, that the use of proceeds are applied to the environmentally driven projects and uses that kind of check the box for both ESG investors and socially conscious investors. And also green bonds have spawned other more focused products. As Susan mentioned earlier, I spend a lot of my time in and around the shipping and transportation industries. And in the transportation space, what we call sustainability link bonds have become more and more prevalent. As distinguished from a green bond, these instruments are structured with the issuer's achievement of sustainability-related targets built into the structure, 
But unlike the traditional green bond, the use of the proceeds need not be earmarked to any particular project or environmental use. The issuer will contract to achieve stated sustainability performance targets, of course, but the money can be used for uh, general corporate or other purposes. Again, as opposed to what we would typically see in a green bond where the use of proceeds would be to fund the project itself. Now, you had mentioned KPIs earlier. We use the same type of terminology for sustainability-linked bonds. Sustainability performance targets are set, and typically those targets are measured by you know, key performance indicators, the KPIs, which are objective and verifiable criteria for determining whether or not the company has met those goals. Separately, apart from the history and what we're doing here in the United States, I know you did hit on regulatory matters. Uh, in the United States, uh, in the public markets, at least the, the Securities and Exchange Commission, not too long ago, uh, and in a continuing focus on both ESG and climate change disclosures, um, proposed a rule that would fundamentally change climate change disclosures by, by U.S. listed companies and other public filers. And you know, the stars were really kind of aligned, you know, around this with what's going on around the world. And the SEC's proposed rule, very long, about 500 pages, and in its current form, it would require a detailed disclosure around greenhouse gas emissions, often by gas type. So you'd have to, you know, if, if taken to its logical extension, you have to understand both how your business, both directly and indirectly, is involved in the emission of greenhouse gases and then track them by gas and report on that in your annual reporting. So I mean, that's just a very, very brief synopsis. Obviously, it's a very comprehensive disclosure rule. But this, you know, again, the regulators are starting to catch up a little bit uh, with what's been going on, uh, both in the transactional side and what investors are focusing on in terms of both ESG and, again, socially conscious investing. Thanks, Rob. That's in, in reality very much in line with what we're seeing in sort of debt finance markets as well. Obviously, for the last couple of years now, we've been talking a lot about the Poseidon principles and there have been a few recent developments. So I guess just for background context, the Poseidon principles is basically a set of voluntary principles that finance lenders can sign up to. They are aimed at aligning portfolios to sustainability targets and the signatories basically agreed to ensure that higher percentages of their portfolios in shipping relate to greener vessels, sustainability projects and things like that. And they're required to regularly report to the Poseidon Principles Committee the composition of their portfolios and to what extent they are aligned with these with the principles. And obviously, this is kind of encouraging ship owners to then you know, take a more stringent view towards environmental compliance and making sure that their fleets are, are meeting these goals. We're regularly seeing this come up now in, in loan agreements, even sometimes where uh, the lender isn't necessarily a signatory, but they want to put the language in the loan agreement to make sure that if necessary, they can go to the borrowers and ask them to provide data uh, fuel consumption data, for example, is uh, is, a, is a key one. And 
the lenders will take the, the data from their borrowers and report it to the Poseidon Principles Committee on an annual basis. But it isn't done on an individual owner's basis. It's all, all done on a portfolio basis. So idea being that the uh, you know, there will be a, an incentive to be more sustainably minded when lending to, to ship owners to make sure that your data that you're reporting is, is it looks pretty good. And I mean, at the moment, about 60% of the world's ship finance is given by signatories of the principles, includes most of the major ship finance banks. So it's a pretty significant endeavor. But as you mentioned, both of, both Brent and Rob, about the regulators, the, the Poseidon principles obviously is a voluntary thing, but they have really sort of tried to align themselves with very ambitious targets when it comes to environmental compliance. And in the last couple of months, the Poseidon Principles Committee has actually said that they will start benchmarking portfolios against more ambitious criteria than what is currently the case. And the International Maritime Organization is has a goal of 50% reduction of greenhouse gases by 2050, which Poseidon Principles is aligned with. But the committee has now said that they will actually start aligning portfolios to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, as well as the goal of uh, maximum temperature rise of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels by 2100. At the moment, IMO is not targeting that yet. They may change, but and we don't know exactly how the Poseidon principles are going to change other than probably expand the scope of emissions that they would look for owners and financiers to limit. But there's definitely some interesting developments coming up here. And I suspect that uh, we will be seeing a bit more aggressive targets coming out over the next couple of years. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, Susan. And I think for our listeners that aren't uh, in the transportation industry, in the shipping industry, that's good background. Uh, The International Maritime Organization, the IMO, has also designed a measure called EEXI, or Energy Efficiency Existing Ship Index. And what that does is that basically measures based upon the type of ship, the type of emissions that it produces to determine how it is doing in reducing its carbon emissions. And that's kind of an, I think, somewhat of an open question is that how that's all going to filter through and how that will come into alignment with the Poseidon principles as well. So it seems like the EEXI measure that the IMO really has introduced is now being obviously accepted as more of an industry standard. The, you know, the, the various agencies are adopting that as well. And, you know, the ship classification societies are I, I suppose, going to be the ultimate arbiters of uh, how it's implemented and to police that on a ship-by-ship basis. And Susan, Rob, just a, a slightly broader point, really. So so sort of talking about the Poseidon principles, kind of brings to mind that generally uh, guidance from trade bodies, industry bodies, and the like, and since the kind of soft law is actually really, really kind of important in this area, no matter the SEC's draft rule is 500 pages or the, the EU's 
kind of screening criteria of 350 pages, because this is sort of covering, you know, all of the activities of companies and all sorts of different kinds of investments. You know, you could write laws of thousands of pages and you'll never hit all of the details. You're seeing kind of trade bodies, in a sense, having to kind of think about how the activities where they are involved in are impacted by that. So one of the things I've been working on kind of recently sort of relates to derivatives and kind of how, you know, derivatives should be treated under some of these kind of frameworks. And, you know, I'd expect there'll there'll be a whole bunch of other sort of specific issues which would arise kind of in other aspects of finance where the the regulations are simply not at the level of kind of granularity that they need in order to sort of give a sort of specific kind of steer to what what needs to be done and kind of how sort of different types of kind of product should be treated. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the Poseidon principles is, is, you know, definitely a good example of that. It's, I think, maybe no more than 40 pages. It's, you know, we're not, it's much more user-friendly and something that is digestible and easier to get your head around them, perhaps thinking you want to sit down and read all that, uh, all that law. Yeah, and, and I think, interestingly, we focus primarily on decarbonization, meaning reduction in, you know, carbon emissions from propulsion systems. But, of course, there are other ways to uh, become environmentally safe, to reduce environmentally dangerous emissions into the seas, which include, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, obviously discussion of, uh, you know, nitrogen and other emissions, oil, for example, (laughs) just plain old oil pollution. So I think we need to keep our our eye on that as well. We, We tend to focus solely on carbon emissions, but there are a whole panoply of emissions that can really, you know, help in making things more environmentally conscious and sustainable and can be the focus of a financing. Probably a good final statement to finish on. Thank you very much for your time today and thanks for listening. And we look forward to welcoming you back to another Trading Straits podcast soon. Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.